Mark Twain had this to say of Wagner. I have been told that Wagner's music is better than it sounds. Hector Berlioz said of Wagner, Wagner is turning the singers, the orchestra, and the chorus of this opera into goats. Nothing can be made of this Tannhäuser. Welcome to my Super Title Life, an ongoing blogcast about my experiences with the San Diego Opera Chorus for the season 2008. This is episode 2, The Great Hall. God, give me a failure like that. Let us not be mistaken. You call this a failure, I call it a riot, which is something very different. Let's meet again in ten years from now before the same work and the same man. You'll take your hat off to them both. A matter like this cannot be judged in an evening. Charles Gounod, speaking of Tannhäuser in Paris. Giacomo Rossini, a longtime inspiration of Wagner, had this to say about him. Wagner has beautiful moments and awful quarter hours. Hello and welcome to this week's show. Um, let's see, what to talk about this week? Well, what have we learned in Act 1 of last episode? Well, it's it set in medieval Germany and in Venusberg, a magical mountain abode of Venus, um, the minstrel Tannhäuser has half-heartedly uh, seen in the beginning as praising uh, the goddess of beauty and love. And uh, for the better part of some time, he's been in her presence and taken of the flesh and had all his bacchanalia rousted out of him. And uh, he's pretty much had it. And uh, when he, she asks him what's up and what's wrong, uh, why does he you know, have that look on his face? And he basically turns to her and says, well, I need to get out of here. I, I'm over all of this. I, you know, basically, I guess in many respects, he's grown up. So uh, he wants to leave, and she wants him to stay, and goes back and forth. And then eventually he calls on the Virgin Mary, which at the moment he does, all of Venusberg disappears. So then he's left in the valley in Wartburg, and along come some of his old friends, and they see him, and they can't believe they found him after all this time he's been lost. And he has doesn't let out of the bag where he's been, but uh, he, uh, you know, tells them that uh, that, you know, he's glad to be back, and they tried to convince him to come back to the castle with him, and he begs off, knowing that if they find out about him, they just won't have anything to do with him. But one of his friends uh, in the group mentions Elizabeth, uh, a girl who he did know before he disappeared into Venusberg. And uh, at the mention of her name, he decides, oh, that's who I want to go see. So he takes off with them at the end of Act 1. So here we are in Act 2. Act 2 is actually the most famous act of... Uh, uh, Tannhäuser. It is set in the great hall of the castle in Wartburg. And it begins with Elizabeth when she comes out and she brings Tannhäuser into the hall before everybody arrives and they reminisce a bit and she sings a bit and he sings a bit and it goes back and forth for a little while. And then all of the noblemen arrive and the great song in the hall as all the noblemen and women arrive is probably the most famous piece out of Tannhäuser. And we're going to listen to a little bit of that, and you're going to get a feel for how grandiose it is. And this is probably Wagner, I think, at some of his best. Um, it really is an amazing piece to sing. Uh, and this is the one that really kicks all of the singers square in the teeth. Um, this is uh, quite a work. Um, 
and you feel you climb into the rafters and basically stay there. It's quite a heady piece uh, in, in that most of the singing is done in the upper register and all accounts for all of the parts, even the basses and altos. They do some climbing in this piece uh, vocally. And uh, so it's a very heady piece. You feel like you're, you're up in the rafters of your head and your brain is scrambled around with all the sound that you're producing. So uh, it's quite an amazing uh, piece of music to hear. Interestingly enough, uh, I actually remembered a part of it uh, when I was going through. This was actually the audition piece for the opera uh, for this season was the Great Hall sequence. And um, it wasn't the men's part that I remembered so much as it was the little section in the beginning where the women sing. Um, What we're going to hear is a little bit of the music. The orchestra plays it, plays the main themes of the piece. And I assume, I'm assuming, because we haven't staged it yet, that this is the part where the people will start to enter and, and fill up the uh, Great Hall on stage. Um, because there's no singing, it's just the music. But the orchestra's playing what we are about to sing. So you're hearing the melodies already. So when we play it, I'll jump in in the middle of this and kind of when you hear the orchestra. I'm going to tell you the piece that I remembered uh, from my past. And I, I, it took me a while to figure out where I had heard it from. But I believe, and if anybody can think of correct me on this if they think that they know better if they can show me better uh i remember that uh, that a commercial was used uh that used a piece of this music from for a Charmin um toilet paper commercial and i think this was shortly after they retired the man who played uh the Charmin guy and um they just did a, a piece where they were just talking about the and extolling the wonderful things about Charmin tissue paper and they played this segment of the great hall music and it's a piece where the women sing and it's just a a very interesting little melody and i'm i think once you hear it it's going to jog some memories for you as well so uh anyways here is the opening the great hall song i'll play a little bit of it and then uh we'll move into more of the story of what happens that sets up the action for act three okay Now here is the section where I was speaking of, and listen to this little melody and see if uh, you can't place this where I do as a replacement for Mr. Whipple in the Charmin commercials. Uh, I think this was the piece they used. cross over into the actual vocal section just to reduce the amount of time we're listening. Take a listen to this. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, that was quite a number. Um, now, what happens after this is uh, the Landgrave, who is basically the um, duke or the prince of this area, um, he has a niece, and that's Elizabeth, and he decides, for uh, no reasons I can tell in the story, that whoever wants to marry her has to sing the greatest song in this song contest. Because, you know, that's the way they gave wives away back then, I guess. They, you know, if you were a good singer, well, you got your pick of the women. So, uh, kind of an unusual point of view, if you ask me. I'm sure a lot of feminists would really have something to say about that. uh, uh, Having uh, a woman give it up for uh, the price of a song. But anyways, uh, be that as it may, suspension of disbelief again. Um... We uh, have a con- song contest between all of the minstrels who sing. Now, obviously, uh, Elizabeth uh, would prefer Tannhäuser, and this is who she's holding up for. And they pretty much is a given, uh, even with the Longrave. He believes that, you know, it's going to be Tannhäuser who's going to win her because everybody just kind of knows it. Now, unbeknownst to Tannhäuser and Elizabeth and uh, all the other main characters, um, Wolfram has also held out a... Uh, torch for Elizabeth, but he's done so silently. And as I stated in last week's episode, uh, poor Wolfram just really kind of gets the short end of the stick in this whole thing. And he's the only nice character that uh, Wagner ever wrote into his operas. He's genuinely a very nice guy and he kind of gets shafted in this whole story. So it kind of tells you the moral of the story, don't be a nice guy in Wagner operas. Anyways, um, so we're going to hear a little bit of the uh, song uh, contest, which is actually kind of interesting. Yeah, I think it's rather interesting because it uses extensive use of the harp. So all of the singing and the song contest portion, most of it is not played by the orchestra. 99% of it is played by um, by a harpist. So it's it's kind of pretty. It, it kind of lends a, a, a kind of a song contest feel to it, I think. Um, you get kind of the idea that this is a, an intimate little setting in this huge hall, but the singer and their harp is all they have for the accompaniment. So that part's kind of pretty. And what happens is that each one of the guys sings uh, these wonderful spiritual parts of, of love songs. They just kind of open up and sing all these lofty ideas about love. Well, Tannhäuser, having spent the better part of his uh, disappearance time uh, with Venus in, in all the throes of Bacchanalian orgies and what have you. He knows uh, what he thinks is the true meaning of love, which is the carnal knowledge of love. And uh, so every time somebody sings one of these lofty, you know, almost spiritual-esque lo- uh, odes to love, he comes back and says, oh, that was a good song. And he agrees with everybody. And then he promptly tells them what idiots they are and that, you know, him being with Venus really knows where it's at and the mere mention of venus's name gets everyone all riled suddenly all the swords come out everybody's pissed off because now they know what he's been up to Oh, the 
Walter's piece, a uh, light little piece that uh, is again lofty in its ideals and quite pretty with the harp. Now we cut away to uh, the chorus and the orchestra getting all agitated because Bitterolf is just sang a song and uh, Tannhäuser is about to refute what he had to say and then he goes into his carnal uh, song about love and that's where he trips up and lets it out about Venusberg and then the cat's out of the bag and everybody gets upset. Everybody gets their panties in a twist. 
So about the time that he, uh, it's his turn to sing, he finally sings a song, and it's pretty lusty. It leaves little to the imagination as to what's going on. And just as all the noblemen are about to get upset and yank out their swords and run him through, and all the women of the court get aghast and just are shocked and appalled, and they all go, and they, and they just can't stand it so bad that they get up and run out of the hall, um, and all hell's about to break loose. Um, Elizabeth, the quick-thinking whore that she is in her mind, she may be pious on the outside, but boy, this girl wants a rockin' good time with Tannhäuser, that's for sure. She decides to put a stop in the kibosh on the whole proceedings of them trying to take uh, Tannhäuser to, to task over his uh, ribald uh, song. And so she puts a stop to it. And uh, in the course of it, she says, look, you know, he may have led this life, but I believe in him. And I think if he really does repent for what he's gone through, then we can save his soul. And that's the most important thing. And so she goes on in that tirade. So at the end of it, uh, Tannhäuser actually agrees. And he says, you know, and we actually get to the point where it climbs in the climax of the final piece of the act two movement uh, or act two segment of the of the play and we start to hear him uh turn to say okay i will leave and, I, and in fact all the all the knights and minstrels turn to him and say you know we won't run you through if you promise to go to rome and seek uh, absolution of your sin and so he finally agrees and he says he'll go to rome with the pilgrims that are passing by and again we hear the women's chorus singing the what the men sang as pilgrims in the very beginning of Act One. So again, we get this influence of, you know, everybody's all upset about the profane, and here comes the pious or the sacred portion. So we get a little remembrance of that, and finally he says they're saying they're off to Rome, and he says I'm off to Rome, and that's the end of Act Two.
now uh, as for the rehearsal process that's been going on it's been kind of nice I mean uh, like I said in the beginning we had uh, the men's section rehearsed for uh, a few weeks and the women were rehearsing separately and um, then in the last I guess the last two weeks now we've been rehearsing together and uh, it's been nice because we've been able to run all of our segments of the show and we've actually been able to hear the things that the women are doing that they do solo like the uh, siren scene in the beginning and they get to hear some of what we were doing with the pilgrims chorus and so it's kind of interesting to hear some of this going back and forth and then we put together obviously the great hall song and the finale of act three um, so both of those are rather uh, nice to work with. Um, it is amazing to work with such a large chorus. It is a, a very large chorus. Um, and uh, it's uh, quite taxing as far as being making sure you're getting all your pronunciations correctly and getting all your timing correctly, and it's very precise. So um, I'm looking forward to the staging. You know, Now that we're getting the music wrapped up and I'm having to really press hard and, and get the German mastered and get it memorized, um, and it's a lot of, and as you can tell with the end of that act that we just played in act two, you know, you have these beautiful harp sequences and all of a sudden the chorus pops in and they're going all gusto and suddenly the orchestra takes off and it gets all melodramatic and then we quiet down again for another song. So, um, there's a lot of that and, and having to time it out and knowing that they're going to end their song and it's really slow and very pretty. And then we jump in and all hell breaks loose for like 10 seconds um, that's kind of a unique kind of circumstance. But, you know, like, again, this was the soap opera of their day. This is how they did it. So um, it's been kind of interesting to actually go through all of that and to be as, as precise uh, as uh, we can. And, and one of the, it's actually kind of funny, one of the stories that I can relate to you about the rehearsal process was we were redoing one of the choruses, one of the sections we were doing, and our chorus master stopped us and he said, well, you know... A lot of Americans have a great misconception about Wagner. They think it's all about how big and how loud you can sing. And that's not really the case. In Germany, or in most of Europe, most of the opera houses are fairly small, uh, with a few exceptions. And so it was never really about how large the sound is. It's more about the color of the sound. And at one point we were singing, and we we were all on pitch we were all technically you know dead with what we were doing but it lacked what he called any color he said because he said it wasn't white it was you know wasn't like it was had no color he said but it was more i don't know a crew and part of the men's section started laughing and one of the guys piped up and said well all the gay guys in the chorus got that joke and which made everybody laugh even more and, he's, and then uh, he, our chorus master tried to correct himself and say, well, I just don't want all the... Uh, and then one of the other guys in the chorus said, sequence to fall off, which made everybody break out laughing. So, uh, yeah, so basically it's all about color. Um, and that's why it's almost more taxing than doing a straight-out opera where you're just letting it go and, and really emoting and really getting everything running up because a lot of it is controlled. It's immensely controlled. And there's just a lot of detail work and a lot of polish. And so you're always having to re think and in fact he he put a good point he says you know when you're hired to be in the chorus and many people think you know chorus is like the choirs and church and that kind of stuff well when you're hired in an opera chorus you are hired as a soloist that is performing in a group so it's a different concept it's a different point of view in other words every note you sing in the chorus must be the absolute best sound you can make 
there can be no exceptions. So you don't have the ability to be lax in an area and say, oh, well, I don't know this part, so I'm going to let so-and-so sing it. Or I can't do this thing you know, correctly, so I'm just not going to sing in this part. No, you have to do and bring yourself up to that level to do it all. And that part is, is what's kind of taxing because you, it really makes you think the entire time you're performing. So it kind of keeps you on the edge of your seat. At least it does for me. Um, so it's, it's kind of interesting to hear that there's all this timbre and color that's going on. And at the same time, you have to be precise about the German diction. Um, and we keep getting the note, forte the words. We need to clear the words, make the words as clear as possible. Um, you know, get the T's where they need to be, you know, put the guttural stops in the words where they need to be, but don't cheat the sound, don't cheat, you know, so there's all these little notes, all these little details um, that we have to go over and over, and it, it really is kind of rewarding work. It's difficult work, but it's rewarding work because you really do have to stay on your metal the entire time, and it's kind of a challenge that the whole time that you're there in rehearsal, you're actually really really putting yourself to the test is putting everything you've ever learned and putting it on the line and saying you know this is the best i can do every time i sing this i'm going to give it 110 percent in diction in phrasing in color in uh sheer vocal power or or control um so it's kind of a, a neat little way to look at it and and i've learned a lot um i was not a huge wagner fan prior to doing this but I will have to say that Tannhäuser has changed my opinion on a lot of that. So uh, I am getting something tremendous out of this. Um, I'm looking forward to the Italian operas because that's more my forte. That's more of what I like to do. But, you know, be that as it may, I've really learned a lot about uh, German opera. And I think uh, I would be really open to doing another Wagner piece uh, if the opportunity came up. So. Anyways, all that to say, that's uh, the end of this week's episode. So um, join me next week, and we will cover Act 3, and I'll give a few more interesting tidbits about Tannhäuser and Wagner in general, and um, we'll take it from there, and I'll let you know how the staging is going, because we start staging as of the 7th of January. So, yeah, we're getting down to the wire. Um, I've already gone through the costume fittings, and it's kind of uh, nice. Uh, the costumes are from the Met, so they're really very, very lovely costumes. I'm, I'm quite pleased with them. Um, at least I'm pleased with mine. That's all I really care about at this point. Uh, it's going to be interesting, though, because we do have to deal with swords, and the swords are real swords. They are pretty heavy, so I don't know how that's going to work. I'm hoping I don't take someone's ear off <laughs> you know, when we have to draw them. But anyways... Uh, I will speak a little more about that when we get to the staging on next week's episode. And uh, until then, um, keep your ear and your eyes out on my website at mysupertitlelife.aquagon.com. If you want to email me, email me at mysupertitlelife at aquagon.com. And that's M-Y-S-U-P-E-R-T-I-T-L-E-L-I-F-E, all one word, at aquagon.com. And that's A-K-W-E-K-O-N.com. Talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. My Super Title Life is a production of Aquagon Media Studios, and its opinions are that of its author and editor, and not of the San Diego Opera or any other organization mentioned in this episode. If you wish to reach Bill at the My Super Title Life, you can contact him via email at mysupertitlelife at aquagon.com. And that's My Super Title Life, all one word, M-Y-S-U-P-E-R-T-I-T-L-E-L-I-F-E 
at aquagon.com, and that's A-K-W-E-K-O-N.com.